Well, good evening. Great to see all of you here on this beautiful Christmas Eve. I want to draw your attention to the worship guide that was handed out to you as you came in. There's a beautiful artistic rendering on the cover. It shows angels above the shepherds out on the field watching over their sheep by night. And I want you to focus on that picture as I read a scripture that sort of supports that particular painting or that artistic rendering. And so listen to me as I share from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among these with whom he is well pleased.
The scripture comes to us from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the trump uh, from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea.
It is good to be with you all again this evening. Merry Christmas Eve. Can't believe it's already here. Wow, that happened fast. But alas, here we are. So Pastor Demi gave me a 20-minute time window to try to keep this message to this evening. I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to be honest with you right up front. It's definitely going to be a smidge, just a smidge longer than that. So... Yeah, but as we dig in this evening, I was thinking how to, how, to, how to get started, and you know, it's December, it's cold outside, and you know, stick with me here as, uh, as we dig into it, but have you ever heard that cold is simply the absence of heat, and how cold something is, is, is based on how little heat there is, so you know, a fun fact, the average temperature in, out of, in outer space is a balmy minus 270 degrees Fahrenheit. So throw back to seventh grade earth science, the, the earth's atmosphere, you know, it traps the sun's heat and as it gets reflected off the earth's crust, but in space there's, there's no medium for that heat to stay, so space is close to absolute zero. And that same idea holds true for the word hope in the sense that, you know, cold is the description of a lack of heat. Hope is always implicitly tied to something else. So what is hope without hardship or some type of struggle or risk? We hope all the time. That's, that's pretty common vernacular. Say, I hope I get a good grade on this test. Or I hope my bathtub isn't going to leak again. Or I hope so-and-so will go out with me. Maybe I messed up. I hope mom and dad will be lenient on me. Simple daily examples of how we hope. But the Bible's use of hope tends to be much deeper and more profound and weightier as hope is often tied to eternal promises in the face of our shortcomings and our rebellion against God. So while this evening's service is a little bit shorter than regular, we're going to spend our time, our brief time together looking at Micah 5.2. So if you will... Um, there should be Bibles and chairs in front of you, or maybe you brought your own. It'll also be up on the screen. Um, but would you turn there with me? Micah is one of the minor prophets, not one that I think most of us probably spend a whole lot of time in. But Micah 5, 2. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and it is good. Help us to understand your word this evening, to have our eyes opened, and to understand what type of ruler this is that we're reading about tonight. Help us to understand what this means for our lives. Soften our hearts, Lord. Incline them to you. Help us to taste and to see how good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Micah is the contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, making what's happening in this text about 700 B.C. The kingdom of Israel has split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, and both have rebelled against God and are doing what is right in their own eyes. In this passage, we have a great hope in the midst of some very trying circumstances that Micah lays out. And in the first two chapters, Micah shows the accusations that he has against God's people. They have become idolatrous. They love that which is not God. They are sexually immoral. They are workers of evil. Their leaders are corrupt and misleading, and their prophets prophesy for a price. So Micah warns them of this coming judgment that God will bring against them for their sin through Assyria, and even worse than with Babylon. But Micah, he is a true prophet, of God, and we're told he's filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And the Lord uses Micah to speak for him and to declare to his people, I know what you have done, and I know your hearts are far from me. God's people have violated their covenant with God. And have shown themselves to be unfaithful. And because of this, God's judgment is coming. And he is withdrawing his protection for his people. Pretty simple. Cause and effect. There are consequences when we sin. Now through the seven chapters in the book of Micah, there's this back and forth, this volleying between judgment and hope. And even though God's people are unfaithful, For his namesake, for God's namesake, and according to his steadfast love, the Lord does not let his promises fail. He never leaves his people without hope. So how do we see this in this evening's text? Well, Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is just the former name of the town of Bethlehem. So what is significant about Bethlehem? As many of you know, that's That's where King David was born. He's the greatest king uh, in Israel's history, and he is highly regarded. He loved the Lord. He was a man after his own heart. And King David's reign, during it, he sought to build a house for the ark of God. But the Lord actually made a covenant with him and declared that he would build a house. God would build a house for David, a house of lineage where David's throne would be established forever. So we're starting to see the significance of what what this means, of why is Bethlehem significant. The prophet Samuel, in uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, we read, When your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up 
your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. A whole sermon could be certainly preached on that text, but to keep it simple, for time's sake, the Lord speaks through the prophet Nathan, not Samuel, like I misspoke before, through the prophet Nathan to King David and promises his kingdom will continue through his offspring. So based on this covenant, Israel anticipated that the Messiah would come from the line of David. That's why the statement, but you, O Bethlehem, is significant. The passage points to the coming Messiah. But unlike Micah, we see today how God's promises are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is that Messiah. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, He will be great, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. That's Luke 1. Luke 1, 30 through 33. And elsewhere, a multiple of times through, through the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as Lord, Son of David, by those who were seeking healing. So we see, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Christ is that ruler, born in Bethlehem, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. He is the perfect judge who searches the heart. He is not impressed with our outward appearances. He can't be bribed and is inclined only toward the truth. And in his mighty hands, he holds justice. He shows no partiality or favoritism, and mercy is his heart. You, O Lord, do not delight in sacrifices, but in a contrite heart. In Christ dwells all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. He is the Almighty and all power and authority, permanently reside with him. He laid the foundations of the earth and was there when the morning stars sang together as we read in Job. And he knows the exact numbers of the number of hairs on each one of our heads. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. Christ knows each of us by name. He is the gentle and lowly shepherd king, abounding in steadfast love and kindness toward each of us who were all at once his enemies. Christ is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Knowing from its foundations that he would be despised, esteemed not, and rejected, Christ is the Lord. And his name is above every other name. He is supreme and his worth surpasses everything else in the universe. No one else is more deserving than he of our affections, our adoration, our prayers, our honors, our worship. He has not even withheld himself on our behalf. We owe him all of ourselves, everything within us. He is honorable. He is righteous. He is clean. He is blameless. He is good. Christ is our everlasting and blessed hope. 
And so we see who Christ is, but what a contrast he is to the rulers in Micah's day, whom are being called to account. Hear how God described the rulers of Israel in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in in the midst of us? No disaster will fall upon us. The Lord loves justice, but these leaders detest and pervert justice. The Lord is all that is good. He is good and loves what is good. These men love what is evil. For these rulers, they worship money and will kill for power and control, not unlike those we see in our day. Micah does not withhold for us a detailed account of the, of the depravity that is in their hearts and what kinds of horrendous acts of evil they commit against one another. Simply look at the beginning of chapter 3. Their consciences have been wholly seared and they have no ears to hear or eyes to see that they are drowning in guilt before God. Greed and arrogance are shackles around their feet, pulling them further and further down. So how many times in scripture do we see how the Lord uses what is foolishness in the eyes of men to accomplish his purposes? It's no different here. But you, O Bethlehem, who are barely sufficient to be considered one province, small town, has not God made the foolish things of the world? Consider how man determines in his wisdom what is strong. No man can say the Messianic king would come from such a a small, unprominent place. Certainly not. Aren't kings supposed to come from nobility and palaces? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Coming from such humble origins gives God all the credit and glory due. No one can say, see this great city that that we made that the Messiah came from. No, we esteemed him not. And have zero credit to claim in the story of redemption. But in the, wis- in the wisdom of men, all the elders of Israel desired Samuel to give them a king. To rule over them. They rejected God and wanted to be like the other nations around them. But see the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. He is not willing that any other should sit on his throne or take his place. In this proclamation of where the messianic king would come from. In effect, God is declaring that once again, he will be the ruler. He will be the king of his people. He is restoring that place. The judge and the governor in Jerusalem have been struck on the cheek and have lost all authority. Thus, a new king shall come forth from the Lord, who is to be the ruler of Israel. The rightful king, God himself, shall once again rule over Israel as the kings of men have failed, just as God said that they would through Samuel. There is a hope. There is hope in this restoration of God as the king of his people. The Lord cannot be bought for a price. 
So what are we supposed to do with this? This seems so long ago. Where are we supposed to go from here? Well, this can't just be a history lesson. If that's, if that's all we hear tonight, then nothing will change. We will not change. And the purpose of Christ being born is completely missed. The heart of those described in Micah as workers of evil, it's the same, it's the same heart beating in the chest of each person here. We're not different. That's not a popular message. I know that. It's not attractive either. Does that mean it's not true though? It is true. I think if we all stopped for even just a minute in the silence and listened, just listened to what our heart might actually be saying, what is going on inside of us, we would hear. We would hear that we are not any different than them. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. More than we dare imagine or could possibly calculate. Think about that for a second. It's not just the one lie that you told someone once upon a time. In the core of our being, we rebel against God. More than we dare imagine or could possibly calculate. We need to be honest with ourselves. If our hearts are to be properly humbled before God, we've fallen. we have followed the example of Adam, our father, Adam and Eve in the garden. We have sinned and gone our own way. We've said in our hearts, I know better. I will determine what is right. No one is above me. I am the captain of my own ship. Maybe we wouldn't choose those words, but I think our actions speak for themselves. Instead of choosing the tree of life, we have gone our own way and we have thereby chosen sin and death. So at the end of Micah 5, 2, Israel and its leaders, we see, have this confidence in their religious system. We see quite an arrogant claim that no disaster would come upon them. As if to say, since we practice the law of Moses, the Lord is in our midst, and surely that means we are safe from harm. But they missed the spirit of the law that Jesus calls out as the first, or as the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God completely with all of yourself and to love others as yourself. Left to ourselves, each of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, not so different. While we don't practice the law of Moses, we still try to make a name for ourselves and try to do enough good to justify ourselves. We don't, well, don't raise your hands, but how many of you are inclined to call yourself a good person? We're not any different. We shouldn't think of ourselves any different. But praise God, he hasn't left us without hope. The ruler from ancient days, from of old, from the little town of Bethlehem, has been born. And why was Jesus born? To save his people from their sins. Like we heard during this morning's sermon from Galatians 4, Christ was born of woman, born in the flesh, born under the law to redeem those from under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Part of the purpose of the law of Moses was to show the people then and us today that we can't earn our way to heaven. I don't care if you go to the soup kitchen eight days a week, if you give all your money to the poor, 
if you serve your community more than anybody else, if you don't cuss, if you don't look at another with lust, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and you are perfect like your Father in heaven, you will not enter the kingdom of God. A high standard. That's God's standard. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So left to ourselves, we are hopeless. But God hasn't left us without hope. We are not hopeless. We need a Savior, and we need a Deliverer. We need a Redeemer. We need a perfect sacrifice, and we need perfect righteousness. That is what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb without blemish, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He never sinned once or had a bad attitude. He loved and obeyed his father in heaven perfectly. And by dying on the cross, his perfect and infinitely valuable blood washes us white as snow. Without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and the wrath of God is being stored up against us. What are we to do? Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, please. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's the penalty. That's what it costs. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive his perfect righteousness. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't leave tonight wondering what must I do to be saved. It's right there. It's that clear. While our sins are many, even when we receive faith in Jesus Christ, and are saved, we still sin. We still sin. But his grace and his mercy always are more. How does that work? That seems, that, that seems like math doesn't work right there. But here's some simple math to try to help you understand. If you have infinitely valuable blood to cover sin on this side, infinitely valuable, and you continue to add up the sins of all people on this side. Does that ever add up to infinite? No, it doesn't. That is why he is the final sacrifice. No other is needed. His sacrifice was that perfect. That's why he hung his head and said, it's finished. So as we close... I want to leave you with one final element of hope that Micah shares with us that has its origins in the covenant promises to Abraham. And it's fully realized in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, it's right at the end, last piece. 
He says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah is recounting to God his promises to Abraham and Jacob, which leaves us to think about the covenant promises of God to Abraham, where he said, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations will be blessed through Abraham and your offspring will be more numerous than the stars. God's people cannot be a blessing if he doesn't confront the evil among them. This judgment, however, leads to hope because God's covenant love and promises are more powerful than human evil. God's ultimate purpose is not to destroy, but to be merciful and save and redeem his people. He desires that none should perish because he delights in steadfast love. Hear this. When God made the covenant with Abraham, God had Abraham split animals in two. It's a little visceral, I know, but that's what he had him do. And he caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham saw a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass in between these animal pieces. And in ancient times, what that meant is two parties would pass between animal pieces like this as a vivid way of representing if either party breaks this covenant, let them become like these broken pieces. Abraham doesn't pass through though. He doesn't pass through. It's God who takes the responsibility as that smoking pot and that flaming torch. He bears the responsibility of both parties passing through saying, if this covenant isn't fulfilled, that's me. So no matter how unfaithful Abraham would be, for God's name's sake, and according to his faithfulness, that covenant would not be broken. So fast forward to the crucifixion of Jesus. See how his body was bruised, how it was scourged, how it was whipped, how it was broken. See how he sweat blood, knowing the pain of bearing the wrath that you and I deserved and considering the pain of being separated from his father for being lonely from him for the first time. See how he passed through those broken pieces so that we didn't have to? See how he became sin? Him who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness? See how he became a curse and hung on the trees so that we're not accursed? See how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham and made his offspring those who have received faith through Christ so numerous. Paul tells the church in Galatia in chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who have been justified and adopted as sons, Christ rose from the grave by the power of God and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. We have been born again to a living hope. 
We know how the story ends. And Christ is victorious. He is that perfect ruler. So as we get ready to light candles and sing a final song, reflect and reflect on Christ as the light of the world. Consider Christ and the hope of the gospel. Remember Christ and the living hope that we have in him. Trust in him and call on specific promises he has given as we celebrate this season. No matter what it looks like for you, cling to promises like, don't be afraid or dismayed. I'm with you. I will give rest for your souls. I have redeemed you and called you by name and you are mine. One of my favorites from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There are a thousand more promises that all have their yes in Christ. So rejoice in the God of your salvation. And if he is not your salvation tonight, I pray. And I plead with you to consider the gospel. Perhaps for the first time, my sinner who needs to be saved and forgiven. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Oh, you are the Lord. Mighty is your name and you are mighty to save. We could not do this on our own. We could not save ourselves. None of us could. Lord, please forgive us of our sin, not because we deserve it, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate the birth of your Son, our promised King, our promised Messiah, the Anointed One, as we celebrate, help us to remember how you fulfill your promises and you are faithful that when we are in Christ, we have a hope and an inheritance that does not perish. It does not rust. It does not wear out. It is sure as you are sure. We need you, God. Thank you for doing everything that is needed for us to be restored to you. May we cast ourselves upon your great grace and mercy. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So this next uh, portion of our service, I forgot about this. <clears throat> is a time of lighting candles as we sing Silent Night. It's a tradition at this church that's been done for decades. And we invite you to join us. As we do this, just a few instructions. If your candle is lit, 
don't turn your candle sideways, okay? If your candle's lit, it stays upright. If you're passing on the light, the person next to you who does not have a lit candle will turn theirs sideways to light it, and that way we can keep the wax off the floor. Jesus is the light of life. His light has come, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Let's pass on the light. You can stand with me. Good idea. Our keyboard is not working. We may have to do this a cappella.
Amen. Well, it is, uh, was a complete joy uh, to be with you this evening uh, to worship the Lord on this uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, you are uh, welcome uh, to remain and linger. There are some, uh, some delicious cookies and other snacks downstairs, so feel free to hang around downstairs in the fellowship hall, and uh, we would love to have you there. Uh, but let me leave you with uh, this benediction as we think about the Advent season and now coming to the end of Advent season and celebrating the birth of Christ. Let us also look forward to the second coming of Christ Jesus as well. Revelation 21, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen.